So essentially, the humans are going to do the exact same task that your algorithm will do, except that, of course, we do it the way humans do it, which is manually through looking at the image, marking you know, the things that need to be marked, classifying them the way that they need to be classified, whatever the task involves. And then the output of that is a training data set. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Mallory Dodd. Mallory is a solutions architect at a company called iMerit. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about building training data sets for AI. The, the hope of this podcast episode is to give you a basic understanding of what training data is and to try and help you understand some of the differences between the terminology. So what, what is the difference between labeling, tagging, segmentation, annotation, and, and where do we apply what technique? So this podcast episode, I think, goes really well with a previously published episode called An Introduction to Artificial Intelligence. So if that sounds like it's something that you might be interested in, go back through the podcast and check that out. I don't think it matters so much which order you listen to them in, but I think these two episodes will work really well together. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well to make it a little bit easier for you to find. Just before we get started today, I want to say a big public thank you to the team behind geoawesomeness.com. So no, no one's paying me to say this. They've just been incredibly helpful recently and I've just really appreciated all the support and help inspiring that they've given me. And I really admire what they're doing. They're not just a website, they're building a community. So during the conversations with some of the team members at GeoAwesomeness, I noticed that the first question they ask is, yeah, but is this going to make things better? How is this going to help the community? And I really admire that. So yeah, again, a huge public thank you to them for all their support. If you don't know about them or haven't checked them out before, geoawesomeness.com. I don't think that you'll be disappointed. Hi, Mallory. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're talking about something that I have a, a great amount of respect for, but very little understanding around, and that is training data sets for machine learning, for AI. This is something you know a lot about. You are a solutions architect at a company called iMerit. And I think before we really jump into the conversation around training data, what it is and how we can use it, perhaps you could take the time just to give the listeners a bit of context. So what does a solutions architect do and, and, and what is iMerit? Sure thing. So iMerit is a data labeling services company for AI and ML use cases. So we're not the ones building an AI algorithm. You know, we're not a, a database provider or anything like that. We're just a, a service that labels data for the purposes of training AI and ML algorithms and models across a pretty wide variety of, of different use cases. That's what we do, but then my role specifically as a solutions architect. So I work with many of our, our sort of new incoming customers and accounts who, who have a use case, who are trying to get started, who want to spin up a project with us, but they need to understand you know, the requirements. They need to understand how the project is going to work, how we are going to execute it. And so it's my job to you know, dive into their use case to understand what they're trying to do in the short term, but also what they're trying to do in the long term and how we're going to help them you know, get to that point. For me as a solutions architect, I'm meant to, to be that sort of subject matter expert and help them understand you know, the best way to think about their project, both in the short term and in the long term. So you sound like exactly the kind of person I should be talking to if I want to understand more about training data. So 
for me, I think we talk about AI, machine learning, deep learning, all these magical things all the time, but we hardly ever talk about what we need to get them going. So that this training data set. So I'd like to start with this really, really simple question. What is the training data? What is it? How do we make it? And, and what do we use it for? Sure. So a training data set is the data that you use to teach your algorithm or your model how to do something, whatever it is that you're trying to get it to do. That's how you teach it, right? Because, you know, you'll, you can, there's like pre-made sort of, you know, algorithms and, and training data sets and different things that are out there. But if you need it to be able to do something specific, you know, be able to recognize specific types of objects or make specific types of judgments about something or track certain things um, through your, your data, you need to train it to do that. You need to train it how to understand what it's looking for and also how to correctly evaluate it the way that you want it to be evaluated. And so this is where, you know, humans come in, which is a phrase that, you know, many people probably have heard in regards to this, which is human in the loop, which means that, you know, you're not creating this algorithm completely separate from, from human input and human guidance. And so that's kind of where that training data comes into play is that you'll put together an initial data set and it can be varying sizes. You know, if you're trying to do something really complex, you'll likely need a really large, you know, training data set. If you're trying to do something a little bit more simple, you may not need as much data. Or if you're building off of something that's existing, you may not need as much data. But, you know, your, your initial data set will be, you know, just raw data. And this will be something that you have either just, you know, purchased um, from like a, a provider or data that you have just directly collected through whatever mechanism you use to collect data, whether that's drones or, or cameras or satellite imagery or whatever it might be. And this is just raw data. And so the training data set is the process of human annotators going through and labeling your data set based on, you know, the criteria that you need your algorithm to be able to, to identify. So essentially, the humans are going to do the exact same task that your algorithm will do, except that, of course, we do it the way humans do it, which is manually through looking at the image, marking, you know, the things that need to be marked, classifying them the way that they need to be classified, whatever the task involves. And then the output of that is a training data set, which is now usable data, meaningful data that you can then, you know, process through your models, through your algorithms, and actually then derive, you know, whatever kinds of insights you're attempting to derive out of that data. So whenever I think about training data, I think about a data set of correct answers. So we have a question, and I think about giving this algorithm a bunch of correct answers. Am I in the right path when, when I think about it like that? Or is it something completely different? Yes. Ultimately, you know, the quality of the training data set is going to directly impact the quality of the output of your algorithm. A common phrase that I find myself using is, you know, an algorithm is only ever going to be as good as its training data is. So typically speaking, yes, you want that data to be as accurate and as close to ground truth as you can possibly make it. In terms of an initial training data set, and let's assume we wanted to find all of the cars in a, a certain image, could, could you walk me through the, the process? Like, what, How do you find all of the cars? What do you start with? And I think we're gonna, later on, we're going to be talking about labeling objects, we're talking about annotation. So what are we looking for? What are we doing when we do those things, if the question is find all the cars? That's a great question. That's usually how most clients start, right, is they have 
they have this idea of, I want to find all the cars. Oftentimes, the first sort of step that you'll need to think about after that is define a car, define what you mean by car. Does that include trucks? Does it include vans? Does it include semis? Does it include motorized scooters or mopeds or any other type of vehicle that has a motor on it? You need to understand, you know, what are the exact parameters of of your definition of car that you're looking for, you know, in this instance. And in doing that exercise, you might find that you need some additional attributes or or additional classes. So maybe you want to separate cars versus trucks versus vans. Maybe you want to classify different types of cars like a sedan versus a hatchback. And so those are all things that that you will have to answer based on what you're trying to do with your with your algorithm, you know, what your use case is. And so once you have an idea of that, we also need to understand, you know, what type of annotation you're looking for. So if you just want to draw bounding boxes around those cars, maybe you need really really precise data. So maybe you need it to be, you know, down to the pixel precision labeling of, you know, the exact pixels of that image that, you know, belong to a car or should be classified as car. And so that's a different type of annotation. Um, So that's another step to think about in that process is, you know, how do you want those cars to be annotated? And then once that happens, it's a process of just setting up a workflow wherein, you know, you transfer your data to, to, you know, my team and my team, you know, works on that data according to your guidelines, according to the parameters that you've set up. And then we, we do our own sort of internal quality checks on that, where we have a different set of eyes that looks at all of those annotations and makes sure that, you know, everything makes sense and is in accordance to the guidelines that you created. And then we send that back to you. And, and you may also want to do your own sort of check over that to kind of evaluate how well we did, how well we understood, you know, what you were looking for whether or not that meets your criteria. And then at that point, you have your training data. We've jumped over an important step, and that's the data, I guess, that we're annotating, right? Because I'm assuming I can't just go out and make a Google search for cars and give that to you and say, this is what I believe cars are. Here are all the pictures of cars. Please draw boxes around them, and then I'll use that in my model on my data set. Could you talk a little bit more about that, the, the connection between training data, these annotations that are made, and the the data set that's actually going to be the model was going to run on? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely an important piece of it. So, yes, you you will want the the actual, you know, imagery or video or lidar satellite imagery, I mean whatever whatever your sort of data type is, you know, the the data type that's used for creating that training data set, you will want that to be as similar to you know the data that you'll be using long term with that algorithm with that model as possible because your algorithm learns based on a lot of different factors not necessarily just the annotations but also on the images themselves and so if you're using let's say you know google imagery or something to to create your training data set but then your actual data set that you know you're using um, with your with your model or your algorithm after that point long term is actually, you know, some kind of, you know, I don't know, super high resolution, you know, imagery that you're collecting from, you know, your own vehicles that you're, you know, going out and driving around or or whatever you're doing, there's going to be then a discrepancy there. And and when you try to feed that other imagery into your model that was trained off of, you know, just Google imagery, it's not going to be as accurate on, 
that different type of imagery. So you want to try to use the same data that you that you're really going to use long term, you know, in your use case to do the training data because that's how your that's what your algorithm is going to learn and that's what it's going to get really good at is analyzing that type of data for those specific types of annotations. Um, so it's definitely something to consider. You want to make sure that there's consistency there. And so that is another part of the planning that you'll want to think about is, you know, if I know that I'm going to be using, you know, some certain kind of satellite imagery, for example, you know, long term for my project, I want to make sure that I'm getting a, a subset of that to use for my training data so that it's as precise and, and as close to what I'll be using as possible. So that makes perfect sense. This really tight connection between the training data set and the data set that's going to be used in practice. I, I totally get that. But I, I guess new data sets are, are coming available all the time, right? We're constantly discovering new things, new sensors are being invented. When we talk about the discrepancy there, are we only focusing on the discrepancy perhaps between the, the pixel resolution, but between different data sets? Or is there also something in the sensor and the, the time the image was captured? If we think about the different lighting conditions that might occur, that the angles, that kind of thing? Or is the discrepancy, is that only around pixel resolution? No, it's it's all of the above, exactly as you said. So, you know, especially with imagery itself, like camera imagery or, or video camera imagery, there definitely can be a lot of variance depending on whether you're collecting images during the day versus during the night versus when it's bright and sunny outside versus when it's cloudy or rainy. All of these different things affect your imagery. And, you know, it's, I would say, depending on, you know, what you expect, I guess, to see you would want to try to get a variety um, in your training data set so that, you know, your algorithm can, can kind of learn how to, you know, assess these annotations and identify the correct, you know, objects or features that you're trying to identify in a variety of different conditions. And the more that you do that, the more variety that you put in there, you know, the, the more nuanced your algorithm or your model would be in the end, the, you know, the better it will be at being able to kind of detect that your desired objects or your, or your desired features you know, regardless of, of those types of factors. When it comes to things like the, the resolution, now that is definitely, I think, perhaps more impactful in certain ways, because, you know, if you're, you're trying to annotate features on really low resolution satellite imagery, for example, and then, you know, that's what you train your model on. And then later on, you're trying to use really high resolution. And let's say it's from a different, you know, satellite is from a different provider. Not only will the pixel resolution be very different, meaning the the precision of those annotations will be very different, but also, I mean, even just the the offset and things like that can come into play. Whereas, you know, if if they're coming from different satellites, different providers, there can be certain you know, just differences, just natural sort of variations between the data sets where your annotations may not actually line up exactly with where the features are located in one set of imagery versus in another set of imagery. So those are definitely important things to think about. And, and the annotations are, are only going to be as good as the resolution of the data that you're putting into it. So the higher resolution imagery, higher resolution or higher density, I should say, point clouds and things like that are going to lead to more accurate and more precise annotations that will get you that, the same result then out of, your, out of your algorithm. So as far as I understand it, there's a couple of different kinds of training data sets you can talk about. You can talk about that initial training data set and I think that's what we've been focusing on up until now during the conversation. So we, we want to create a data set, give it to a model and identify all the cars. What, what about when we think about continuous learning? So for me, a part of the magic of AI is that it can learn. So it can, it's not just 
one and done. It can update itself if we continue to train it. Can you talk to me about some of the things I might want to be thinking about if I am creating a training set or updating my training set if I'm participating in this continuous learning with with my model? Yeah, exactly. You know, that definitely is something that we see more and more of um, as AI is becoming more mature and and all the different sort of algorithms and, and use cases and models that exist out there are all becoming more mature. The human in the loop process is one that really is pretty continuous. It's it's not just kind of a one and done thing where, okay, I've trained my my algorithm and I never have to touch it again or update it. And just as you said, sometimes there's just new sources of data that are available that are better or can can get closer to what you're really looking for. Um, and so you may you know want to revisit that. There's also cases where your needs have changed. You know, let's say in the beginning, all you needed was to identify cars, but you know, maybe a, a year or two later, now you need to be able to identify whether or not a car is moving or is parked in addition to, you know, just locating the car in the image. Or maybe now you need to be able to identify the color of the car or whether there's passengers inside or, or something like that. And so that's certainly something that we see as well. And there's different ways to approach that. You know, if, if you're just trying to kind of add on additional attributes or, or additional objects, additional things that you want annotated, you can even use some of the same data. And then another thing that you can also do is use your algorithm's actual output as our input data when we do the annotation. So let's say your model is able to identify cars, but now you need to be able to add on additional attributes like color or, or passengers or something like that. You can run some data through your model and then give us both the images and the, the annotations that your model has created. And we can you know, add additional annotations. We can edit and do sort of like a QC correction type of thing on your model's annotations as well. So it's not always the case where we're drawing the annotations from scratch. Sometimes we are just, you know, kind of correcting or adding things onto what your model may have already created. With new imagery, if you're using a totally new data source, you may need to, to kind of create a new data set, a new training data set from that. It may, you know, it could be smaller perhaps because your model has already been trained to some degree on this, on this sort of use case. And so you don't necessarily need to start from scratch, but you need to perhaps increase the precision of your model or, or maybe you just need it to be able to, to be accurate across different types of data or data sets or something along those lines. So creating some additional, you know, training data sets that, that you can then use to feed into your model will help it to, you know, better achieve that nuance. I'm sure this is an incredibly naive question, but oftentimes it feels like we're constantly feeding things into these models and we're never removing things from them. Is there ever a situation or is it even possible to do that and say, ah, no, I, I don't want to use that data anymore? Or is it just putting in more of the data that you do want to use that, that improves the model? Hmm, that's a good question. To be honest, I, I don't know that, in, at least in my time in this role, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody wanting to do that. That's an, that's an interesting thought. I mean. I would assume if you wanted to do something like that, you could most likely, again, kind of have us ha have a team of human annotators, I mean, to say, look at the output of your model and then potentially remove those annotations that you no longer desire to be there. And, you know, and you could potentially kind of feed that back in. There's different ways of sort of assigning, you know, importance or almost like positive feedback sort of in, in, your, in your algorithm in terms of what it identified correctly and incorrectly. and so. You may not even necessarily need human annotators in some cases. You may be able to just sort of 
you know, start marking those annotations or those outputs as as incorrect as a way to kind of adjust, you know, your model in that sense. But that's really interesting. I, I've actually never seen that one come across my desk, at least. <laughs> Perhaps I will soon as <laughs> as this continues to grow and, and more and more people get involved with these types of use cases. Yeah, or, or it could just be that I'm completely, you know, lost in, in this world and have no clue what I'm talking about. I doubt that I'm the that, that I'm the smartest person in the room when, when it comes to this kind of stuff. I was just curious. We've talked a lot about annotations. We've talked about labeling as well. And I think this would be a really good point in the conversation to maybe walk us through what are we actually talking about here? What is an annotation? Is it different from from labeling? And I know from a previous conversation with you, there's this idea that we can use vector annotations, we raster annotations. We've got classification tagging. I'm wondering if you could just take the time to explain a little bit more around annotations. What are we talking about? I use the term annotation and, and labeling pretty much interchangeably, though there there is a certain type of annotation that oftentimes gets referred to as labels or tags, which is that that classification type, which is when you're not necessarily actually drawing anything um, in an image or or something like that, but you're simply sort of giving it a tag to indicate that it belongs to some particular category. So what that might look like is taking your example from earlier with, you know, I'm looking for all of the cars in an image. You may have annotations which are actually drawn on the image, which is to capture those cars, but then you may also want the annotators to simply mark whether or not it's daytime or nighttime in that image. And so that's a classification tag or a classification label. And so what that means is it's something that is applied to the entire image. It's not, you know, one object that is being drawn or marked. It's just a a descriptor or metadata, if you if you can kind of think of it that way. It's like metadata about the image that it is applied. So that could be confusing for some people if they're accustomed to referring to that as a label. But when I say annotations or or labels or annotation or labeling, I'm usually just referring to the same thing, which is the the process of applying those annotations to your data, whatever type of data it may be. So yeah, different different types of annotations. Um, they all kind of have different pros and cons. Bounding boxes is probably the most uh, simple, uh, aside from that you know classification tagging that I was just describing a minute ago. A lot of people are probably familiar with bounding boxes. So it's basically just drawing a box right around whatever object um, or objects you're interested in finding in your image, um, and that typically involves two marked points. So it's it's top left point and bottom right point. So you start with the top left point and then you draw your box down to the bottom right point. And those are usually the coordinates that will be kind of provided in the in the output, you know, JSON file or or XML file, whatever type of file you're using, typically will have those pixel coordinates of your bounding box. So that's kind of the most simple, simple kind. It's it's mostly used for object detection as well as object tracking if you're using video. You can draw 3D bounding boxes in LiDAR data, which are typically called cuboids, but it's kind of the same concept of just a, a box that is marked around a certain set of points that, that represent a single object, like a car in your point cloud. There is also polygon, which I'm sure you know, many people are also familiar with. Um, so this is, this is essentially just you know, digitization. You can think about it that way, right? So it's, it's drawing a polygon around a feature, whatever feature that might be that you're trying to extract. So it's a little bit more precise than a bounding box because it will it will capture the 
precise contours of the object that you're that you're seeking to identify. So then and as far as vector goes, there's also point and line as well that you can do. We typically kind of call them like key points, which is just, you know, marking specific points at specific places. This is oftentimes used for things like facial recognition. It's probably the most well-known use of this. So, you know, you'll mark certain points on the face, like center of the eye, left corner of the left eye, left right corner of the left eye, you know, corners of the mouth, certain points on the nose or cheeks or hairline or different things of that nature to kind of just mark those points in the face so that as a person is talking, or doing various expressions, you can kind of track the movements of those specific places on their face. So that's kind of an example. Then there's also line, which is, you know, again, pretty simple, um, just marking lines. And this is often used for, let's say, routes that you're trying to mark, or it could be marking different geographical features like rivers and roads and that kind of thing. So those are, those are the main vector types of, of annotations. There's also some raster types. And so that's what we call semantic segmentation. And there's actually several different types of segmentation. Semantic segmentation is, is kind of the most common where you are only marking um, the desired objects in an image. So again, going back to your car example, if you're just looking for cars in an image, you would only create, uh, you could call it like painting almost, like marking all of the pixels in the image that belong to a car and classifying them as car. Um, that would be semantic segmentation. There's also panoptic segmentation, which is when every single pixel in the image is marked as something, is classified as something. And so that would be if you, you know, you really want to have a very high degree of of precision on every pixel in the image, exactly what the object is, so that you can kind of see this full picture. And there's also instance segmentation, which is it's similar. It can kind of go in between semantic and, and panoptic where it can be used in either case where, for example, with uh, semantic, if let's say you're trying to mark all of the pixels that belong to cars, but you also want to know specifically which car. You don't want them all to just be labeled as car. You want to know like car one, car two, car three. You want to see them as like discrete objects. And so that's what instance segmentation is because you're, you're classifying the specific instances of those cars in the image. And then panoptic can, can apply that same concept as well where you know you're marking every car and every person and every tree and every cloud and, and whatever else happens to be in your image. I'd just like to go back to the vector annotations for a second. We talked about points, lines, polygons, bounding boxes. This is all really familiar stuff for people in the, in the geospatial industry. I'm, I'm curious, do people focus on creating these sort of parent-child relationships with, with these discrete objects that they're creating as well? And what about the attributes we're attaching to them? Does this just depend on, on the use case, what the model requires, what the output is going to be in terms of the questions that the, that the model needs to answer? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, we, we can apply attributes to pretty much any kind of annotation from bounding boxes to points, lines, you know, anything that you kind of want to do, we can apply various attributes to that. So that kind of goes back to what I was mentioning earlier. For example, if you're, if you're doing this cars project, well, Maybe you want an attribute that, you know, where we have to mark what color the car is or whether it's parked or whether there's people in it or something along those lines. Those are attributes that you can have, you know, added onto that bounding box or polygon or point or line, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do. You know, there's any number of attributes can be added onto that. And so exactly as you said, it's really up to, to you to determine if that's something that you need 
if that's information that you're you're going to be evaluating later and if it's important for your algorithm to be able to correctly you know identify those same attributes then that's something that you want to include if it's not important for you you know you just want your your algorithm to be able to tell you how many cars are are in a picture then you don't necessarily need to know all these different attributes um and so it would just kind of be a waste of time you know for for you to have that added in to your project so it really depends on your use case and, and you know how detailed you're trying to get that data to be and and how much you want your algorithm to be able to evaluate those types of conditions in an image. So I'm not sure if this question is, is going to make a ton of sense or, or be easy to answer, but I'm going to try anyway. So we've got discrete objects. We've got these sort of pixel-based annotation methods or, or techniques. How do I know which one is going to be right for my project? Can we split them up into broad groups and say, if you're looking for this kind of thing, vectors are the way to go. Or if you're looking for this kind of thing, you, you need to do the, think, be thinking about this as the raster annotation problem. That's absolutely a fair question. And it's one that I think you know, pretty much everybody needs to ask if they, if they really want to you know, start training a model and, and creating training data is, is understanding, well, which type of annotation should I really use for this? So... The raster annotations are typically going to be a lot more precise. This is going to be important in cases where you really need your algorithm to, to be able to see the exact um, sort of contours of an object or, or feature that you're attempting to capture. It could also just be in terms of how you're attempting to use this data later on, whether you're using it internally versus if you're actually then passing that along as, as some type of product or service to your customers, that may influence how precise you need it to be. Bounding box is, is probably going to be one of the least precise just because it doesn't capture you know, the exact contours of an object. But you know, when you're doing something like object tracking in a video, bounding box is perfect because you don't really want to take all the extra time to have someone draw a, a polygon around you know, a person who is, let's say, running or you know, playing basketball or something in a video where they're going to be moving a lot. There's going to be a lot of you know, extensions of their arms and legs and, and turning and doing all kinds of different things. I mean, you can do that if you need to, but that's going to take a lot of time you know, for someone to go through that video and, and you know, basically draw polygons around the person. Whereas if they're just drawing bounding boxes, bounding boxes are sufficient to, to teach your algorithm how to just track the movement of that person or other object like a car for example through a video and so you want to you want to try to think about how to maximize precision and inaccuracy that you need making sure that it's meeting the the like sort of the minimum standards that you need while also maximizing you know cost and time and and other types of things like that that go into the project so that you can you can process more so if you go with a simpler type of annotation you can most likely process a much greater volume of data using a simpler annotation, whereas with a, a more complex annotation will take longer and you may not be able to process as many images or data points, um, you know, through that workflow. So those are all just, you know, things to kind of weigh. And, you know, it, it's hard to put just a broad sort of concept around it because, again, it, it depends entirely on what you're trying to do. And so that's part of what I do is, is you know, when, when customers come to me with a project and they, they are looking for recommendations or they may be new to this space, it, you know, it's part of my job to really understand what they're trying to get at so that I can tell them, you know, bounding boxes may not be the best for this project that you're trying to do. You may want to look at 
you know, semantic segmentation instead, because you're trying to do something more precise or more complex. Or I could say, this is too complex for what you need. In reality, you can accomplish really the same result using something that's going to be simpler and, and take less time. It just depends. <laughs> it seems like that's always the answer. So in my notes here, I've got initial training data set. And beside that, I've written high volume. I wonder if we can afford to be less precise, perhaps, with the kinds of annotations we make, if we're going for volume at the start, if we're making that initial training set, and then perhaps be more precise when we're moving into the, the phase of continuous training. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty fair evaluation for sure. You know, and, and you can think about your, your project or, or sort of your life cycle of, of how you're training your AI in stages, right? So at the very beginning, you may want to just get to the point where your model can successfully identify just objects, objects that you're looking for, whatever those objects are. Um, and so that's going to be perhaps, you know, a more simple, you know, bounding box or, or polygon or some even key point, depending on the scale of your data. And then as you are, you've kind of got that piece under your belt and, and you've met those goals, then you might be looking at, okay, well, now I, I need you to be able to identify different attributes of it or, or different aspects of it or different components of the object or, you know, whatever that might be. And so then you may want to, you know, exactly as you said, look at a more precise, you know, form of annotation that's going to capture nuances between, you know, different states of, of that object. Because bounding boxes are not going to capture the nuance. They're just going to capture that, you know, this is the object and here is where it is in the picture and here's where it's moving to if it's a video, for example. But the other types of, of annotation that are more precise are going to be able to teach your algorithm how to recognize differences between objects of the same type. So a person standing up versus a person sitting down, a car with a door open versus a, a car with all the doors closed, um, that type of thing. So you, know, you can certainly think of it in, in stages and in iterations of building complexity and building nuance um, into your model as you move through that life cycle. Just, just one more quick question about annotations. So when you're moving around the internet, quite often you're confronted with the, these capture things. You know, they're, they're trying to confirm that you're a human, that you're not a robot. And so the question will look something like this. Here are six, nine, 12 pictures, small, fuzzy pictures, poor resolution. And click on all the cars, click on all the, the buses, find all the street lines. When I do that kind of thing, is this what we would, could refer to as tagging? Like that, that labeling classification, that labeling annotation that we talked about before? Yeah, that's actually a, a decent example. Yeah, because you're not actually annotating the, the specific location of the, the lights or the cars or the you know, bus or whatever the, the capture is telling you to, to mark. You're just marking whether or not the image contains that object. So yes, that's a, that's a good example of um, classification tagging. So I think you've done an amazing job of walking us through what a training data set is, what it might look like, the relationship between the training data and the actual data we're going to be used in a production environment. Amazing discussion around annotation, what it is, the different kinds of it, where we should be thinking about using which form of annotation. Absolutely incredible. I've learned a ton. So you work for a company called iMerit. And as far as I understand it, you have a bunch of humans doing this, right? So I can go to you and I can say, please annotate these images, give you the um, instructions, and a bunch of humans will, will, will do this work. For me, anyway, part of the promise of AI is that it'll figure stuff out by itself. Can you imagine a time where humans will not be in the loop, where we won't need to annotate with humans to 
create these kinds of, of training sets? That's a question that, you know, I, I do hear, I guess, every now and then, right? I mean, it's a concern a lot of people have about AI. What we've been finding is that, you know, the answer, at least as far as we can tell, is no. Um, that, you know, human, human context and human input is thus far always been needed and, and will likely always be needed to really get your, your algorithm to do something that is meaningful to human users. And whether that's creating the initial training data, as we've talked about, but even as we also mentioned that, you know, there's ongoing training that oftentimes needs to occur, you know, as you're, as you're making new adjustments, as new data is coming available, um, as you're continuing to improve the capabilities of your model, all of that, again, brings in humans into that process of training your algorithm with your data. So I don't really foresee any you know, situation of humans never being involved in that process. I will, you know, uh, one story that I've shared before, because I think it illustrates this perfectly as well as, I think it was like a couple of years ago, some some engineers like uh, at Facebook, I think it was, were toying around with trying to create some AI that could, it was something to do with encryption. You know, they were trying to find a way, like an AI could find a way to sort of encrypt some information so that, you know, no other system would would be able to decipher it um, or something like that. It was very experimental. And so they were using a, a non sort of human in the loop process. They were using that sort of a, like competitive approach where there's like two different AI algorithms that are sort of competing against each other to accomplish the goal. And so they actually had three different AIs, three different algorithms. Two of them were attempting to communicate with each other without the third being able to understand them. Right. So again, it was a way, an experimental way of just trying to see whether they could train these AI to accomplish the goal. Well, they they really succeeded, um, but unfortunately, they ended up the two the two algorithms that were attempting to communicate with each other ended up essentially kind of creating their own language, um, encryption language, as part of this process. But unfortunately, it was completely unreadable and completely undecipherable by humans, and so. Ultimately, they ended up just shutting it down because it's not useful. It's not useful to human users. It's not useful to Facebook as a company. It's not useful to human users of Facebook. The point here is to try to protect data, but ultimately we want to be able to access that data at some point when we need to and protect it when we don't need it. But if, you know, if if our AI are just kind of if they don't have that human element and that human context built in, that tends to happen, right? They tend to just kind of do things that make sense to computers, but may be completely unusable by human beings. And the whole point of AI is, is to create something which helps us, right? Which helps us do a job or helps us learn or helps us accomplish something or analyze information more efficiently. And if it's not usable to us, then there's no point in creating it. So I think that's an important thing, you know, and something that I always think about whenever that question comes up is that Computers, if they teach themselves that, you know, it won't be usable by humans, it won't be something that contains the very, very fundamental human context behind data that really is what gives data meaning. And if, if it's not usable by us, then it's, it's not something that we're ever going to want to build because um, there will be no purpose for it. So that's my thought on it. I know I'm a bit biased coming from a, you know, a human in the loop company, but I, I really genuinely believe that humans will always, it, it will always be an integration, um, a partnership between between humans and AI. 
Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I, I can definitely see that if the machines are working for us, they're going to need input from us to tell them what, what we like. How do we want this to be? What makes sense to us? So I, I, I definitely see it from, from that perspective. And I, I really appreciate you going out on a limb and, and walking us through that. that. That was really nice of you. Thanks. You see a lot of customers. You said at the start that you're a solutions architect. So I'm imagining that people show up all the time at your knock on your door and say, hey, I want to be part of the AI revolution. We've got some data. Let's sprinkle some machine learning magical dust on it and make billions of dollars. Where do you think we are in terms of the hype curve here? And perhaps a really good way of maybe explaining this to us is, do you think, are people showing up on your door with realistic expectations of, of what's possible and, and perhaps the amount of effort involved? I would say the vast majority of the time, you know, yes, people's expectations are, are fairly realistic. There definitely have been, I would say, maybe a couple of cases that I personally have seen, you know, in, in my portfolio of, of accounts and projects that I've worked on where there was a little bit of overkill going on maybe um, or, uh, you know, trying to trying to, to do some type of annotation to, to train a model to do something that, you know, wasn't really, um, wasn't really going to make sense or it wasn't really going to lead to the result that they really were looking for. And a lot of times part of that comes from the client not really taking into consideration issues of like human subjectivity. Subjectivity is, is definitely something that can be difficult to, to deal with in, in AI and in training data. And so sometimes if people are trying to get at very subjective use cases, they can oftentimes sort of underestimate how to set that up or, or the effort that's needed to set that up and make sure that you know, you're trying to account for as much subjectivity as possible and that you're getting as much consistency as possible from the human annotators since we all you know, have our own subjective biases on things. So, you know, that's one area where I, I think I've seen some attempts maybe um, being made at, at trying, to, trying to set up an algorithm or, or bring AI into, into an equation and, and approaching it perhaps the wrong way or, or not really thinking through everything that's needed to, to make it happen. But quite honestly, I mean, even with, even with those clients I see that are, are fairly new into the space, they might be a little unsure of, you know, how much they're going to need or... or you know, what all is going to be involved or, you know, the types of things they're going to need to think about. But ultimately, you know, they're still trying to do things that are realistic, um, that are, you know, within the realm of possibility. And so, you know, that's what we can help them with and, and help them through all of the other components. But, you know, that being said, you know, the, the realm of AI is, is being pushed further and further every day. And, and I certainly, you know, have the very fortunate opportunity to see a lot of the Sort of very cutting edge type of stuff, you know, things that, you know, are, are brand new use cases that, you know, nobody has really tried to do in exactly that way before. And so it, it can be pretty exciting. But yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, vast majority of the time people, people seem to have a really healthy understanding, at least of what's possible. Sometimes they may be a little unsure of, of how exactly to approach it or, or, you know, how precise they need to be in, in that type of thing. But that's understandable if you're, if you're newer to the space. When you talk about the realm being pushed, so people are trying new ideas and, and, and testing things out, do you have any examples of use cases that you think are truly innovative? Maybe one area that I've seen a lot of growth recently is in like utilities management. And, and it, this doesn't sound super exciting. I apologize that it's not maybe super cool sounding, but this is an area where I have seen a lot of growth coming up, where more and more, you know, utilities 
companies and asset owners are starting to understand that they can actually use AI to do some pretty, pretty complex evaluations of utilities assets. So things like public infrastructure, like electrical towers, gas lines, you know, roads and bridges and, and all kinds of things that, you know, they typically have been spending, you know, millions of dollars annually to have inspectors and teams kind of go out and monitor all of these assets. And they're discovering now that, you know, you can fly a drone out over, you know, the area where your assets are, and then you can train an AI to basically process that imagery collected by the drone and actually tell you what are the condition of your assets? You know, what what needs repair? Is there anything that is damaged right now at this moment that needs to be go needs to go and get fixed? Or is there debris or um or, or just telling you what you have? You know, sometimes it's just inventory, knowing, you know, what exactly is out there, what number of components are there present? Are there cracks and and dents and rust and all kinds of things? Which is, you know, and then even classifying different types of rust and different types of damage that can come into play. So that's one area where I think it's really quite remarkable to see, you know, how people are applying that because, you know, infrastructure and, and utilities is something that is, I think, difficult to manage otherwise. I mean, it's just, you're talking about miles and miles and miles of area and millions of assets across a state, a, a city, a country, and, and thinking about how you can really use AI to vastly improve this process is, is pretty remarkable. There's also been, I don't see this as much personally because I, I don't uh, focus on our, our like medical AI use cases, but we've seen some pretty amazing stuff happening in the medical AI space as well that I think is, is really quite cutting edge. I wish I could speak about it more intelligently, but I just don't know all of the different medical terminology to be able to really go into depth about it. But we, we've been seeing a, a very big increase in you know, the amount of medical AI projects from and everything from, from pharmaceuticals to hospitals to medical research to medical documentation and, and all kinds of different things um, where AI is coming in and you know, starting to play a role in this. In some of the more exciting aspects might be things like surgery assistance and different things like you know, monitoring um, different uh, like scans, like x-rays, ultrasounds. You know, looking for cancer cells, looking for tumors, you know, all kinds of things. It's, it's really pretty amazing. I was so sure that autonomous vehicles were going to be on your list. I, I was sure of it. I thought, I'll ask that question and Mallory will say, autonomous vehicles, that's where the action is. But no. Well, there certainly is. But I, I guess in my mind, um, I, <laughs> that's perhaps one of the, the longest standing uses of AI, which has been out there. And so, you know, yes, but there, there definitely has been a lot, a lot of movement there. It's an industry driver for sure. You know, I've seen a lot of stuff involving autonomous vehicles myself personally. Um, so it, it, that is definitely really exciting, you know, it, and it has been a, a front runner of the whole AI industry for a long time, for, for sure. Mallory, I, I think this is a really good time to round off the conversation. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you, the way you can walk people through a really complex subject in, in a way that People like me can understand it. So absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. If someone is listening to this and they want to reach out to you, they want to learn some more, find out more about what you're up to at iMerit, where, where can they go to do that? Sure. Yeah. So they can head to our website, iMerit.net. We'll have details on there about the different verticals that we work in, different you know types of use cases that, that we can do. There's contact info there to reach out. I'm also on LinkedIn. A lot of you know our... Our team is on LinkedIn as well, if that's an easier avenue to reach out as well. 
And we also participate in webinars, talks, conferences. Pre-COVID, you could find us at you know all kinds of conferences that had to do with AI. We'd almost always have a booth <laughs> um, or something up there. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to get back to doing that again soon. So yeah, definitely reach out and let us know if you have a project or are interested because we can absolutely guide you through that process. Thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come and speak. This has been amazing. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Mallory Dodd from iMerit. Personally, I think this is hugely important to understand AI. So obviously not just training sets, data sets, but you know, the things around AI. It's taking up more and more space in the geospatial landscape. It's becoming that go-to tool, that go-to technology. And I think as practitioners and professionals in this industry, we have an obligation to at least understand this in, in terms of the, the broad strokes. So what are we talking about when we're talking about training data? How is it made? What, what are some of the difficulties and challenges around it? You know, what, what is it possible to do with, with AI? What can the outputs look like? How are these systems going to grow and change over time? I, I don't believe that we all need to be experts in, in any of this. But again, I, I think we have an obligation to at least understand this from a, from a very high level at least. That's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in all the way to the end. Much appreciated. As always, you can reach out to me on social media. You can find me at Mapscaping on Twitter and the link to my LinkedIn account will be on or in the show notes, I should say. So and you're more than welcome to connect with me there. Any suggestions for uh, people you'd like to hear from, topics you'd like to be covered, feedback on the podcast, things you like, things you don't like, please send them my way. It would be greatly appreciated and really help me understand where it is I should be taking this podcast in the future. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.